Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey listeners, and welcome back to another episode here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch, and with me, jumping through life one episode at a time, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. You know, it does feel like that sometimes, actually. Like we're going through episodes in our lives. <laughs> Whether podcast or life in general, we are jumping through these episode hoops that uh, are coming at us. But they're good, they're bad, they're ugly, they're all sorts of things. And we're here, so that's all that matters. We are finishing out our love for Makoto Shinkai with a conversation about his 2007 film, Five Centimeters Per Second. And like all of his other films... This one does not disappoint. Before we take our conversation there, we wanted to remind you that voting is open for our February donor pick. This month, our patrons are choosing one from among several movies that won Best Picture in years past for us to cover. Those films are Spotlight, Moonlight, Forrest Gump, French Connection, and A Beautiful Mind. If you want to be a part of the voting and get access to bonus content and all that fun stuff, Check out patreon.com slash film for more info. We are now officially into spoiler territory. So if you have not tuned in before to this show, know that we are a spoiler-filled podcast, and this is a part of the show where we dive deep, get into good conversation, and spoil the heck out of every movie that we cover. So with that being said, we will start with our obligatory one-word takeaways. And Aaron, why don't you take it away? All right. Well, my one word takeaway for this is longing, because more than anything, this is what the characters feel. And it's the emotion that I feel like Shinkai wants us to experience alongside them. And he is incredibly successful in doing so. It's definitely the emotion that I can relate to. I have experienced this all it feels like man and honestly it is one of the harder films to watch because of it it had been a while since i'd viewed this one and i didn't remember just exactly how hard it was going to hit me until i was knee deep inside of it going oh crap i forgot about all of this and yeah this hurts he is a master at capturing emotion through animation and it's masterful work here again like you said, going all the way back to 2007, he has really never not been amazing when it comes to his art. And this was a heartbreaking, realistic depiction of romance, of the way that we hang on to the thought of ones we have loved far longer than the relationship lasts and how that can affect our life's path, how we fail to see things directly in front of us because... We're busy focusing on hope for something that isn't there, how painful it can be to know that you're the one being ignored, and just, it goes on and on, man, and yeah. Powerful, effective movie. That's for sure, and this was the first time I got to watch this, so this is definitely a new experience for me, although with the movies that we've covered this month and in years past, I've gotten familiar with Makoto Shinkai, so getting a chance to see this for the first time had some familiarity to it, had some surprises to it. But the the one word that I used to sum up my movie experience was the word reality. And I was inspired by a great quote on the interwebs when describing 
this movie. It was simply love doesn't win. Reality does. <laughs> and that's just a harsh reality about this story. And I think it's very sobering. I think it's something that is somewhat unexpected because of kind of what we're comfortable with, what we're used to as moviegoers. But it shouldn't surprise us that Shinkai plays with our emotions in a way and gives us those narrative choices where he says, you think it's going to be this, but it's really not. And it's less about kind of pulling the rug out from under us and more about reminding us that through an emotional story, we are connected to these characters and we do understand them to, to an extent. But I think at the end of the day, the word reality really does sum up what this whole narrative is saying and that this is what life can be. It's not always what you want it to be. It's not always what you expect. And I think the same thing can be said about Makoto Shinkai is that not every one of his features is going to be something that we expect, but it's always going to be something that is true to, to his trademark style of, of uh, writing and directing. And so it doesn't disappoint on an emotional level. That's for sure. Uh, as someone who got to watch it for the first time, I definitely felt its weight um, probably equally as much as I have the in the past features that we've seen. In fact, I think I talked to you about this offline that his short form storytelling, his, his shorter movies are ones that I can kind of wrap my head around a little bit more because they're a little bit more simplistic. It doesn't take away from things like Weathering With You and Your Name or The Place Promised in Our Early Days, but I definitely gravitate towards these. And I think it's the more direct emotional punch that they give us than um than the than the long form stuff well to begin i wanted to talk about the structure of the movie a lot like the place promised in our early days which has parts to it this actually has three individual episodes it's a very deliberate separation in these three parts and that's very different uh we don't i, I don't know that i've ever experienced this in a feature before at least not recently so getting a chance to experience this kind of three-part narrative pulled together by these two main characters took me a little bit to kind of get used to. And it got me thinking about what Shinkai is doing with this method of storytelling. So I wanted to start the conversation by asking you, what do you think he is doing with, uh, with this kind of storytelling uh, approach? Well, you know, I, I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. I think that it packs a more powerful punch in short form storytelling in one way. And that is the word direct. You use that. And I think you're absolutely on point there. It is right at it. it, it there's no periphery stuff happening. There's not fantastical elements to wrap your head around and sci-fi futuristic concepts to try and understand in order to grasp the gravity of whatever romantic situation is taking place amongst these things. Instead, it is, here's characters, here's what they're experiencing, here is them here is them going through this thing, live in it. And he is probably one of very, very few directors I would think could be successful at doing this, man. It is incredibly hard. And I think we have to really acknowledge that now you and i have also spent this weekend going through the oscar short films which we're going to talk about on our next episode and we do every year and it was kind of interesting to watch this 
like while I was going through them on the same days because I was like, man, this is essentially a bunch of expertly told short films. Like that's what these are. And only they're connected <laughs> back to back. You know, it's like a sequel, like number two, uh, chapter two is like a sequel to the first short film or something. But it is a very difficult thing. And you know this too, because you make short films every year as well. And so it's super hard to condense a story and really build things up so that people can feel and give it all to them in this tight little package where they're not left wanting for something more. And so I don't know why he chooses this other than I almost have to believe he's sort of challenging himself. I think maybe early on in his filmography, you know, we've seen this happen kind of twice also with the place promised in our early days. I can't remember if voices of a distant star has a chapter uh, concept to it or not. I think it might also have something similar to this. You know, these are based off of manga as well, from what I understand. So, so that was written first. So we're adapting a medium and it might be easier to do that in this chapter form to take one section and be like, okay, this is chapter one. And then take another section. And this is chapter two without having to worry about how we're going to perfectly connect all of it into one big flowy story. So that's maybe why, but I really appreciate his doing this with the exception of my one complaint, which we'll get to in specifics here, but he's great. And, and I got to say the first part in general, episode one, I say episode or, cha or chapter interchangeably because I'm going to just misuse that just so you know. But Cherry Blossom, the first part of this film, is one of the best pieces of filmmaking I've seen in my entire life. Like that standalone piece is as good as any animation or any live action thing I've ever seen. It is like right up there at the top. It is absolutely flawless, phenomenal. That's something else I was going to I was going to bring up. First of all, I agree with you. I think that in Inspired by manga is probably one of the more solid reasons why he probably did this. It would be great to get into his head. I'm, I'm almost, as I was putting the notes together, I kept thinking I would love to have him on the show and just talk to him about all of his methodologies, all of his processes and stuff, of course, through an interpreter, because I don't know if he speaks you know, fluent English. Anyway, that being said, we, we look at these three chapters, these three stories and it got me wondering how they work individually. Because when you put a beginning, middle, and end to a 20-minute story, you kind of feel like it, there is a level of completion to it. And so when you mention Cherry Blossom, I think in and of itself, if you put that off to the side and presented it as a short film, it absolutely works in terms of being complete. What's interesting though, is it serves equally as a precursor to the heartbreak and the, that longing that you feel when it plays itself out specifically in chapter three, five centimeters per second. I think where I struggled was that middle chapter cosmonaut. It, Semantically, it was a little weird because I didn't know, I didn't know that these were three chapters about these two people. And so when you have, uh, Takaki being referred to by his first name or last name, by his other name, I thought, wait, what's going on here? Now, again, this is part of the dub. And so I don't really know if that was, if I missed something here and there, but I felt a little disconnected going into 
the second chapter because it didn't focus on these two main characters. We had this, wow, great, completed story. And then chapter two, Cosmonaut, now we're X number of years later and we've got this guy shooting a bow and arrow. And so it was a little bit jarring. But once I started understanding it, then we get into five centimeters, that last chapter, and it really came together and it it hit emotionally in a huge way. Completely understand why you would feel that way. I actually, having even seen it before once, it took me a second to be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's what's happening. Oh, I forgot it was a different girl. And then this is, oh, yeah. And it takes a second to kind of adjust to what is really taking place there. Um, I, it's weird. It's interesting, though, how we view things differently. And, and this is kind of fun when we're not 100% on the same page, um, for the podcast purposes, at least. You know, I think one and two are perfect. And where this film loses a slight bit for me and, and can't hold up with his best works, in my opinion, is in that third chapter. And for me, it's not because the emotional punch isn't there. The emotional punch is there. It's just so different than the first two for me that we go to a much shorter section. It Half of it is a music video montage that is literally flashing so fast. It is edited so fast that because it's keeping beat with the music, I noticed. And ultimately, that not a lot happens. Like, not, like nothing really happens. It's almost like a coda and it only it's its own chapter. And I didn't feel it needed to be its own chapter. And it felt like there's a, there's something missing that kind of connects. A, I just needed a little more there or something um, in that last chapter in order to feel structurally speaking, like it was one cohesive whole, <laughs> even though we're three episodes here, like for them to feel perfectly kind of equal parts for me, it was missing something in the third. And I think what what you're experiencing is more like if you were to watch the first one and maybe like a short piece of a second one and then have a third coda, like it does. I mean, it works. I'm not, trust me, I'm not like saying it doesn't work emotionally because it absolutely story-wise makes sense and works. I just loses a little for me because it feels like it's happening so fast. Yeah, I, I can I can see that. And when I watch these three, it reminds me of how I love The Godfather Part Two because The Godfather Part One existed first. Like Part Two is my favorite of that duo. But it's only that good because of the information I got in part one that allows me to understand it and appreciate it a lot more. I can really love Cherry Blossom. But Cherry Blossom becomes a lot better because of Cosmonaut. Because what I think Shinkai is doing very effectively here is it's he's talking about these two people who are separated similarly by a small distance, but by a great time frame. Like I don't know that because I don't know geography when it comes to the the Asian world, I'd like to believe that they are in proximity to each other, so to speak, but they are disconnected because of circumstances. 
And so he's playing with that. He's playing with time. He's playing with um, social connectivity here. And I think what Cosmonaut does really well is it creates a a severing or at least an attempt to sever that relationship in a way where Dakaki is constantly fighting to keep that relationship what it what it was or what it could be at the expense of Sumida. So I think in a lot of ways, Cosmonaut is equally as devastating as five centimeters because this is affecting so much more than just these two. Well, it's not like the world's ending or necessarily, but you have somebody else who you sort of learn to care about or grow to care about. And she's kind of been relegated to the friend zone. Uh, as you so poignantly put today when I texted and, you, yes, yes. I was like, definitely. Um, but I think in, in a lot of ways, all three of these, they work so well together to not only thread this narrative about these two people, but to also get you completely immersed emotionally in each individual one. But I don't know that they can necessarily work independently of each other with the exception of maybe cherry blossom. Yeah. I mean, I, I think cherry blossom can work. It, it's a different story. If you mm-hmm. see it on its own without five centimeters, without any of the other context of either episode, it is just its own story of longing for someone who is so far away and doing everything in your power to find a way to spend one night with that person. Like it is that important to go through literally to you know walk uphill in the snow both ways kind of scenario here just to spend five minutes with that person. That's the feeling you capture so perfectly through cherry blossom. And you, that is something people can relate to even without the periphery of things that happen. It's just, he has a way of piling on additional emotions and experiences through his characters that lets people come to this from all different directions and angles. And that's what makes it so brilliant. And what his work is so powerful for me is it's not one thing. It's not one relationship and one emotion that he's trying to get someone to feel. It's like all these things that people can be like, oh, I don't relate to that, but my gosh, I was Samita. And I don't relate to Samita, but my gosh, you know, I've been uh, Takaki before and Akari, or or, I, or like me, you know, I've been all of those things at one place in my life. So it it's just, I think that's what makes it masterful. It, it is. I mean, there there is almost a, an emotional vibration that he puts in all of his stories because they don't just affect the two individuals. They affect them the most. It's like they're at the epicenter of this emotional reverb, but their choices and the way in which they act around each other really does push the relationships around them in different directions. And this is a story that's about love and loss and mostly about loss, something that is not your Hollywood scripted story. It's definitely not something that you'd find on the Hallmark channel where everybody gets together and everything is happy. And walking through these stories, walking through the individual episodes and standing alongside both of these characters, I really felt like I was getting some truth. Like I was getting this sense of you're fighting, but are you fighting for a good reason? I mean, you're working through all this, but Takaki, you've gone on how many trains just to meet this girl? And it's a beautiful thing, but you're getting pounded by the snow. 
and it's freezing and you're again i don't know asian culture but i'm like where are they going to stay when the train station closes i mean it's almost like this futile attempt at saying i want to be with you but i'm going to risk not being able to stay somewhere now obviously it was fine but it i i look at these situations and i i'm challenged by the fact that these are kids Aaron, these are these are teens but what they're experiencing is something that adults experience as well. This isn't just puppy love. I mean, these are these are two individuals that in their minds feel connected. They feel like everything is worth sacrificing to be together. And that's a lofty goal. That's a very romantic goal. But at the same time, when we see their story play out, I wouldn't call it tragic. I would call it reality because Shinkai, I think he's saying – it doesn't always turn out that way. Just because you've gone through a blizzard, literally, doesn't mean that you're going to get this person at the end. Maybe you will for a time, but ultimately, this may not be who you're supposed to be with. 100% correct. And, you know, it reminded me of summer camp. So I don't know how many kids grew up going to summer camps outside of the South where you and I grew up, but that was a big thing, right? We would go off to camp for a week or two weeks or multiple different camps over the course of the summer. And it reminded me of those feelings when you have a teenage summertime romance and you're trying to find a way to like take it back with you to your real life. And you're connected it by letters or by, in this case, there, the advent of cell phones technology is, is on your side, you think. And so you have this text messages or emails you can send right back and forth it reminds me of a specific experience I had meeting a girl named Tara, and I don't even remember her last name, from West Virginia. And that's really about all I can tell you. I could, I actually can see her face perfectly in my brain. Um, but I met her in Washington, D.C. while I was there competing on a mock trial team. And we had an awesome time, like getting to know each other. We spent, you know, maybe three or four days together and we just we had we shared a slow dance and a kiss and then we parted right and i tried for literal years to keep that relationship alive patrick we came home we would send each other letters a couple of summers later my parents even manufactured a family vacation over the summer to go to washington dc so that we could stop in west virginia so that i could see tara and it was very different Right. When I did get to actually spend time with her again in person. And after that, I don't remember like when, how quickly it fell off, but it was rather abrupt after that point. And that is what Shinkai is doing such a great job of capturing, because in that moment, my friend, I was in love with that girl and I would have moved hell or high water. And if I could have flown my own butt in a plane of my own, you know, fancy, rich ownage. That's not a word. Ownership, whatever. If I could have gotten there, I would have gotten to West Virginia and tried to like be with her. But like I couldn't do that because I'm like a junior in high school. So that is in a bottle here in this short film so perfectly. And I, I agree with you. I think it's great that they didn't have a plan. They had no idea what they were going to do. They just were trying to get to each other. And like whatever it looks like once they're there, they feel like nothing else matters in that. And in that moment, it didn't matter. But then your word reality comes back the next morning 
And oh yeah, I live however far train ride, you know, hours upon hours away from you. And now I've got to go back to that life. Yeah. So I wonder, it makes me wonder what the movie's trying to say, which I know when it comes to movies, it's subjective. And I, I think Shinkai is fantastic in that he doesn't try to give us a deliberate message. Um, or maybe he does, but I know in this particular one, I was asking myself, what's the value in holding out for the one? Uh, there's a lot of talk in fictional stories about your soulmate and about you're supposed to be with this, you know, the person you're supposed to be with, that's who you're meant to be with. And I think we've had so many conversations on the show about our opinions concerning that because of the way in which it edits our perceptions, it edits our expectations sometimes negatively. But I do wonder what the, what the movie is ultimately trying to say about holding out for that one part, particularly Takaki. I mean, we, we look at Akari. I didn't pick out that she was holding out for him. Um, he was kind of the one holding on to something that ultimately wasn't quote meant to be. But this idea is, is the, is the narrative saying that it's ridiculous, that it's romantic, uh, all those things. Is it wasteful? It, it's a, it's a question that I have and I wanted to pose it to you. Um, I mean, I think that it's equal even in the first moments, you know, I, I think we're quickly led to believe in part two through his, narration and i'll also say structurally i probably could have mentioned this before but the first episode in particular is like 90 percent voiceover narration and 10 percent actual dialogue as he's traveling on this train and i loved it i loved the choice to do that to get inside his head and understand what he's feeling this is some of the best writing in Shin shinkai's filmography hands down it very well may be the best writing in his filmography like Time felt heavy with malice as it slowly crept by. The words very were like, poetic. Yeah. very poetic. And it was like, draw. and that's part of that, like in a short film, right? How are you going to get me there quickly? You did it with your poetry because I was getting sucked in to the things he was saying. He was so descriptive and so passionate in the way that he was using these words. You know, all that was left were Akari's soft lips on mine. The moment he kisses her into the tree and it is beautiful stuff. Um, the thing that makes me believe that it is mostly equal is when he arrives at the train, she has been waiting and the way that they look each other at each other when he first comes up and she slowly reaches for and grabs his hand and begins to cry um, quietly in the, in the aftermath of like them finally becoming together i feel like they're equal in that point so chapter one i really do feel like this is a both parties truly want to be together and then much like my relationship with tara using it to continue the comparison here like as we move on he is ignoring people in cosmonaut he is ignoring samita because he's worried about Tara. He's still sending his, sorry. Yeah. He's, wow. still, he's still sending, <laughs> he's still sending his emails to Akari, right? Like that's where his mind is, but Akari is moving on with her life for the most part. And that is what I experienced. And so it's so realistic in that sense, because that's how it happens is one or the other. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to always be the boy or it's always the girl or whatever, 
one party is going to seemingly want to hold on to that longer than the other party is willing to. And that's the point where I think we start to see, even though she's not in the freaking second half at all, hardly, like we start to realize through what he tells us that she is not fighting for this anymore the way that he is. Yeah, it's a very familiar story. And it speaks to the fact that the heart wants what the heart wants. But I would add to that, but it only works if the other heart wants it too. And the truth is, I think in the at the end of Cherry Blossom, Akari was willing to say this was a great moment. We got what we wanted and we enjoyed it. But now it's time to move forward because we know we can't make this happen. And so I think she put closure to it where he didn't. And it's heartbreaking because it plays out in such a romantically torturous way in Cosmonaut with his relationship with Sumida and then ultimately in Five Centimeters at that moment where he thinks he possibly sees her across the train track and then she disappears. But I think something that Shinkai does is he reminds us if he's trying to say something to us, it's that moments do matter and that being in those moments, being fully present in those moments matter more so than maybe the consequences that come afterwards. In other words, as you mentioned at the end of cherry blossom, that cold night that they spent together and talked and walked through the snow in the quiet winter night, which I thought from a, a Foley standpoint, I've raved about this before. I love, love, love the Foley in this. I love hearing their feet crunch in the, the Foley snow. or the foliage. It could be both, but in this case, I'm going <laughs> to, I mean, it's, it's called cold. cherry blossom. So, you know, sure. <laughs> the Foley, the technical aspect that I have grown to uh, love so much. And there's that moment that we're in there with them. I mean, we want Takaki to make it to see her and get on the trains and, and not be slowed down. And we feel that tension with him. But as we're reminded at the end of five centimeters through that montage, that is very much kind of abrupt and really fast. What do we see? We see moments. We see happy moments that they have with each other. And I think Shinkai is saying that those are important too. And we shouldn't forget those, but we shouldn't let those define what the universe is really trying to tell us, which is that these two are probably not going to be meant to be together. In fact, I, I look at this and I go, you look at the whole story and the universe is against these guys. You can make that interpretation. I mean, in that first part where he's going to meet her, he wrote everything he wants to tell her in that letter, but it was lost as it flew in the wind. <laughs> yep. And then Akari also wrote a letter for Takaki, but she wasn't able to give it to him, knowing that it could be the last time ever that they were going to see each other in person. Yep. Not to mention the fact that they were going through a giant snowstorm. And that shut down the train for two hours in the middle of the track. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's a million I, things saying, just turn around, dude. Just stop. Yeah. <laughs> just go. But our brains are the romantic hearts of 
our humanity say, no, love will conquer all. Or the pessimist will say, turn around, dude. It's cold. You're not, how are you going to get back? Where are you going to stay when you get there? <laughs> and so I fought that. The pessimist in me and the optimist in me are like, this is beautiful, but it's also a reality that, that you're going to, you're going to get pneumonia and you're going to get frostbite. <laughs> and that's the beauty of part two because yeah. it flips it on his head. And literally Takaki is now Akari and doesn't realize that he's Akari because he's being Takaki. And Sumida is Takaki pandering for Akari. Like she is doing the same exact thing to him. She's pining all over him and pinning her hopes on him and waiting for this magical thing to happen between the two of them throughout that whole episode. And it's not until the end when she realizes it that we kind of realize it with her that it's not just her that's being kind of we learn through it's it's so brilliantly done, Patrick, because her longing for Takaki is portrayed to us in a way that feels more sort of childish. And it's it's in your face like your emotional takeaway from watching her is get over it. Like, obviously he's not interested in you. That's what you want to say to her. And it's through being able to have that expression with her that we suddenly realize like, (laughs) well, oops, we should be saying the same thing to this guy because he needs to just get over it too. But we feel differently about it because we have more backstory between him. Um, It's wonderfully like interwoven there. It really is. And that echo that goes through it makes me wonder the guy that pines for Sumida later on that we don't see that we're imagining, is this going to be the same thing that happens? He's going to pine for her and she's going to send emails that never actually get sent to this guy. Um, I mean, I don't think so because we see her realize it in the episode. She comes to the realization that, Oh, he's not, thinking about me like, he's just not that into you that kind of thing <laughs> yes essentially yes <laughs> and it's it's really it means wrong it breaks my heart because there's a part of me that wants her to be with him i mean they have a really great friendship they have a they have a really fan it it is childish but it's meant to be because they're teenagers i mean he is at sports doing his i mean everything about this is very much like summer camp but i i think that her emotional connection to him and their relationship is very genuine. I think it's very much something that for them should be fought for. And I feel like she gets the short end of the stick there because he can't let something go that needs to be let go. Now, from his standpoint, when you share a cold evening with someone that you spent two hours on trains trying to get to her, that's going to stick with you for a good while. And you probably feel a little bit grown up. I mean, I would feel grown up if I was a, what, 12 13 year old kid and i'm spending three hours on a train that i don't know if i'm going to get back just to see this girl yeah absolutely there are those dreams of grandeur that that live in that so i understand i just don't agree because i think that choice that he makes it could potentially make her feel jaded like oh gosh i mean if you know if if he's going to be this obsessed with this girl or this connected to this girl that you know, he'll never get, then what does that say about me? Says Sumita. I mean, again, this is me projecting, but I think that it's beautifully done because 
ultimately Shinkai gets us to five centimeters. And what we see is Akari, who has moved on, is getting married. And her life is complete. Her life is satisfying. I'm not sure. But I think for Takaki, we get to that last moment where the train goes by, she disappears, and then there's that grin on his face. And for me, I think that's the moment that he realizes, you know what? I need to let this go. I need to move on. She's moved on. And I'm eight years older. It's time for me to be an adult and time for me to find something else or not, but just to move on to a new episode of my life, if you will, or a new chapter. And there is a little bit of hope there. It's just kind of how you kind of interpret that ending. Is it the universe was against you getting together, but that was okay because ultimately being together probably would have been detrimental. I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I, I mean, I think, I think that that honestly, I would, w- I would argue that we should not try to even think of it like that, that that's not the purpose. The point of this is not, should they, or shouldn't they be together? That has nothing to do with the story in my opinion, or what is actually being told to us. Like it, it is all about just watching characters, experiencing their choices and relating to them not worrying about what should or shouldn't maybe you know could have happened to them as so much but like just the emotions that they go through in the moments of their choices i'm trying to articulate that difference but because it's all about what he feels like he has some great quotes in this third part even though it's really short he says i'm just been living my life but the sadness piles up around me like that to me is a great description of what it's like to be waiting and waiting and waiting for someone. And I mean, I've felt that myself and it, and it hit home very strongly. He says, I still love you written in emails that were sent by a cell phone, but I doubt that our hearts got closer even by a centimeter. That is a powerful statement because there are plenty of people in this world who've experienced that where you send each other texts that, oh, I love you. Oh, I love you too. Oh, good night. I love you. Good night. I love you too. Like, at what point does that mean nothing? Because it, you're doing it out of habit. You're doing it out of routine. He's so absolutely right. And when you're in that moment, you there is so much weight that gets put on that. At least, I, at least this is what I've experienced in my life. If that text pops up saying, I still love you, it's going to be an endorphin rush. It's almost like the feeling of buying something for yourself, you know, like when you shouldn't because you don't have the finances and it's really not even about having the thing. It's just the idea of shopping, like acquiring something new kind of sends off these, these signals in your brain and makes you feel good. It feels good to see that. I still love you. And it like keeps you going until the next day, but then you just need another hit. You need another text message to say, I still love you as well. And eventually you realize like, wow, this means nothing like I'm just doing drugs and I'm now in a haze and reality is completely passing me by because I'm stuck here. And it it is really so well like displayed for us. I think what's interesting too, is that the, this connects a film before it and a film after it. There is both a place promised in our early days, (laughs) the cherry blossom tree that they promise to meet at that plays a pivotal role in this final section and an exact replica of the scene that will eventually take place in your name where 
The two characters who feel they, we are supposed to feel, one of them feels is fated that they would be together, pass each other by, but they look back and that train is going between them. It's, a, it's an incredible shot, right? One of our listeners, Philip Hurd, was talking to me about this and he said that he loves how this worked out because the filmography leading up to Your Name and especially this moment right here is what makes Your Name so effective because in this film and in Voices in the Distance Star and some of the other stuff, he leaves us saying, don't you dare do this to me again once we're watching Your Name. But instead, it's a catharsis because the characters do actually turn around. They do get that moment of hope that, that leads them into a romance in the future. That's what we're led to believe. And that is part of why Your Name is so incredibly, you know, happy in the way it ends for us and like effective. And I just thought that was a, an amazing point of view that he pointed out right there about how the kind of string of Shinkai's filmography works together. Right. I mean, he loves pairs. He loves connecting to people and whether that connection is appropriate, whether it's out of left field, that's what I think the strength of Shinkai's films are, are the fact that he puts two people together and he doesn't necessarily say, here's the story that I'm going to tell. I'm going to end up putting them here. You're right. Your name leaves us hopeful. I'll say hopeful, not necessarily happy because there's still that unresolved moment of like, we hope this will happen, but we know we don't know what's going to happen. And I think that five centimeters does the exact same thing. That interpretation is very wide open. What does the smile mean? And I think that question mark is something very cool to ponder because we don't know. Could it be that he's resolved, that he's like, I'm moving on? Could it be that he has some deeper understanding of what it means to live life fully without necessarily being connected to somebody else? I don't know. And I'm not going to attempt to try to interpret that. What I think is consistent, though, is that Shinkai leaves us with a sense of wonder. He leaves us with a sense of wondering what will happen next. And I think, Aaron, that if I were to guess at a part of Shinkai's methodology, it's that he always wants to leave us wanting more and to remind us that life doesn't stop, that even after the credits roll, the stories go on and on and on, just like us. I mean, we have episodes in our life. We have seasons in our life that have a start and a finish, but they don't necessitate, they don't call attention to the fact that our life is over. I mean, I have, you know, college was over. I graduated, but that doesn't mean my life stops. I now move into a new season. And I think that Shinkai does that so effectively because he puts it on a personal level with these characters that he introduces us to. Yeah, I, I mostly agree with you. However, another listener, Matt Fletcher, um, sent me the translated lyrics to the song at the end credits of this film. And it sort of gives context, I think, to Takari's kind of mind view uh, or Tanaki. What is it? Now, now I'm forgetting his name. Takaki. Dad gummit. Um, so I'm going to read through these um, a bit here because it's pretty poetic stuff. The lyrics are this. He says, 
I'm always searching, searching for you on the opposite platform or through a window in the back alley, even though I know you can't be there. If my wish were to come true, I would be at your side. There would be nothing I couldn't do. I would risk everything to embrace you. If only to avoid loneliness, anyone will do. On this night, when it seems stars will fall from the sky, I cannot lie to myself. One more time, don't fade away. One more time, I want that time when we messed around together. Weird. I'm always searching, always searching for you. In the middle of the street and in my dreams, even though I know you can't be there. If miracles do happen, I want to show you right now the new dawn and who I'll be from now on. And the words I love you that I never said. The memories of summer revolve around me and your throbbing heartbeat that suddenly stopped. I'm always searching, searching for you. In the city at dawn, in Sakuragi-cho, even though I know you can't be there. If my wish were to come true, I would be at your side. There would be nothing I couldn't do. I would risk everything to embrace you. I'm always searching, always searching for even just a fragment of you. Uh, if miracles do happen, I just want to show you that right now the new dawn and who I'll be from now on and the words I love you that I never said. I'll always end up looking somewhere for your smile at the railroad crossing, waiting for the express to pass, even though I know you can't be there. If I could live life over again, I would be at your side every time because I would want nothing more precious than you. That being the ending credits song makes me think that he's not over it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's that's my takeaway from that. Well, I didn't hear those lyrics when I was watching it. So my subjective opinion is that, yes, he he is moving on. <laughs> Otherwise, he's going to break up a marriage. And I don't want that to happen at all. No, no, no. I don't think it's about <laughs> breaking up a marriage. No, 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 no. And I know you're kidding. But like that's that's the thing is it's not about like what he's going to do or not do. He's emotionally in his emotional state he is still longing and wishing that life would have been different and he may be moving on right he may be accepting it mm -hmm. but there is a part of him that will always wish and regret what he never had and there is a difference there's a difference in that and letting it consume you and not allow you to move forward. And in this one, he does specifically say he's going to attempt to move forward, but not fully forget what he wishes might have happened. Well, and that's, again, reinforced by the montage of the moments that they had that Shinkai does not want us to negate. So a couple of other things before we get into our connecting points, I wanted to talk a little bit about the technical elements. Of course, the animation and the backdrops are incredible i mentioned in the episode on your name that shinkai likes to split the frame in half and i know i think he uses he's yeah he splits it in half whereas you know in in, in some design thinking it's usually split into thirds i i noticed that early on shinkai balanced the frame with um the way in which he put things together either having two people staring at each other or having a person full on in the middle of the frame and balanced out on either side. But as the narrative went on, imbalance became kind of the focal point, which I think was very, very cool for him to kind of reinforce the fact that life is not, it's getting a little bit more chaotic with these two and particularly with uh, Takaki. I also thought that the use of weather, which He's becoming a lot more famous for now, weathering with you, obviously, uh, was a little bit ironic, you know, that these two people got together uh, in the middle of a snowstorm, 
but saying goodbye essentially for both of them took place on this beautiful day. Like the, the weather itself was opposite of what you would expect for like, hello, snowstorm, goodbye, bright day. You would expect the opposite to happen where they would be breaking up on a cold, dark, snowy night and they'd be getting together on this bright spring day when they're supposed to be reconnecting at the, at the, with the cherry blossom tree. And so I, I, I think that when you look at his filmography as a whole, he's so delicate and so intentional with the nonverbal stuff equally as much as he is with the script and the characters and, and things like that. I love the fact that he does take careful consideration of those things in order to reinforce what he's trying to, to accomplish. Yeah, agreed. And, and then the whole second section of Takaki doing nothing but pining over Akari from afar while Samita is, you know, showering him with this affection or trying to is all in the summer. It's all bright and nice outside and she wants to go surfing and he's like off in La La Land, just not able to quite enjoy it in the same way that he might be able to because of his longing. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a great observation. Well, we've covered almost all of his filmography. I think Voices of a Distant Star is the only one of his features that we haven't covered. Maybe we should just fill that gap in at some point just to complete it. Yeah. But like most months, like most Januarys when we've covered these, I think there's a, a sense of reflection that I take in kind of looking back and saying, well, what did I appreciate about Shinkai? What did I learn? And so I, I really just wanted to to ask those questions. Was there anything in particular or some things that stuck out to you watching these, watching them again, that you appreciated about Shinkai, things you didn't know, but you knew, you know, now things that surprised you or things that, um, you, you were unaware of that you're now really appreciative of. No, I wouldn't say there are for me personally. I'm hoping that there are for listeners because that's really who this is for. Um, I was already, so much a fan of everything he's done and i'd already seen all of his work leading up to this event that we're doing so some of them multiple times i mean i knew that the tie-ins were all there and i knew how they were there to some extent maybe the connection between his films of of like characters being in different films of course and just the way in which like that observation from philip heard earlier about how this film sort of flips on its head or I'm sorry, your name later kind of flips on its head. What this film does in a very positive way that gives the viewer a different experience emotionally, things like that. Those subtleties are there. Um, There is actually something in my, basically what I'm going to talk about in my connecting point is going to be about some subtle, subtle storytelling or subtle ways in which his shots are very nuanced And that is something that has stood out to me in every single one of his films as we do these rewatches. When I see them a second time and I'm able to look beyond the big flashiness of the visuals that captures my eyes the first time and is directing them all across the screen in these beautiful colors, there are these moments that I hone in on. and, And those are what I noticed more than anything going through his filmography, how good he is at crafting those um, and that adds so much to his story emotionally speaking where visually they're always going to be striking 
and attention getting, but there's quiet, soft moments that you would see in live action, but he puts them in his animated films in a way that I don't think I see almost anywhere else. So that's the thing that I think stuck out to me, if anything did. Yeah, I think those moments are inspired by his manga experience because he has to draw specific panels. That's a really good point. That is exactly what it feels like. And so being able to animate that, I think, is reinforced by those things. I will say that for me, I would actually like to go back through a couple of these and watch them with the sound off just to catch those visuals, catch those nuances. But something I've noticed that might be painfully obvious to everybody else but me is something that I want to see not change, but I'd like to, if I had an expectation of what I'd like to see in the future from him is all of his movies focus on teenagers, you know, young people and how they relate to the world or how they relate to each other. I would be curious to see if he would ever branch out into centering around more adult type environments you know in the you, you know using the workplace instead of centering around school i don't know if this is just part of his uh directorial mo that all of his stories center around kids and there's nothing wrong with that i'm not it's not detrimental but if i had kind of a wish list i would like to see maybe some future features um centering around you know what it's like as an adult in tokyo <laughs> i definitely don't want him to leave tokyo i think he loves Loves Tokyo, loves destroying it, loves covering it with lo- lots of weather. But, um, you know, I'd be happy with uh, more rain, more trains, you know, those types of things. And I like the fact that he's consistent, that he puts those things in all of his features. He doesn't necessarily say, look, this is who I am. And I'm like, I'm glad you are who you are. Well, I've come to realize that it would be like a movie about Seattle not having rain or trees. Like, it, that is what Tokyo is. Tokyo is very rainy and it has trains everywhere. So yeah. where I once, when I first saw his film for the very first time, his first couple, I was like, Oh my gosh, there's so many trains. Now I've started to realize that there's a reason for that. It's because that's what he lives around. You know, that's what is there. But yes, I think those things will be there. I, I don't really know that I have any expectations or even hopes he said in his interview after weathering with you that he wants to do something that is continuing to innovate and be different. So that tells me really nothing because I don't know what that could be because I'm not in his brain, uh, but it will be something maybe that we're not expecting, whatever it is. Um, maybe not another teen romance centered around weather and fantasy. I mean, that's about, <laughs> as, about as you know specific as I would get. I don't, I would watch anything he puts out. Sure. Like you're saying about adults, I don't know that it's something I would necessarily want or ask for. I would watch it and I would expect it to be amazing because it's him, but it's not something I necessarily would prefer. I think I really enjoy the blending of stories. I like his older teenage characters, young adult slash teenage characters. I, I like the sensibilities that come with playing in that world. And I think that that's why he does it as well, because there's something that happens in us when we get serious and we have families and lives and we just are going to work every day that is a little harder to tell stories that way without something exciting or thrilling taking place to kind of drive an event um, or you end up with marriage story. And I really don't want the Shinkai version of marriage story. Because yeah, that would just kill me. 
Well, and, and to your point, having that kind of subject matter that would be boring, mundane, hard to tell stories would probably be just the right thing for him to try to innovate and say, well, how could I craft an interesting narrative around the normalcy of Tokyo life or something? I don't know. But in any case, I think both of us agree that he will have our attention no matter what he puts out next, um, whether it's a TV show, another manga, or another feature. With that being said, let's move into our connecting points. Aaron, if you want to get us started. Yeah, absolutely. So like I kind of mentioned earlier, the, there's these subtle storytelling elements and nuance. And one of them is in the rocket launch, but I want to point out one that I want to help point out two moments. And this is really a weird sort of connecting point because it's not like a big emotional thing that is one specific moment, but the things he does with the camera that I was talking about earlier, these are examples of that. He takes time to give us a, now I'm going to think of it as panels because you said it where when they meet at the train station and they are sitting down talking to each other. We get this one moment where the shot on the screen is from the floor and we are watching their legs. And it's very specific in showing us the way that Akari's legs are posed. They tell us an incredible amount about her emotional state, her nervousness as her legs sort of start to kind of come together and move a little bit back and forth. They tell us how she's feeling by watching her legs shift as she speaks off screen with her voice. And, and it, it is just an incredible thing to watch if you're paying attention to it, because it adds so much that if you were just watching a shot of their two faces talking to each other, you wouldn't necessarily get this. But by seeing her body language and specifically by watching just this lower body language and, and her legs from underneath the bench view, it, it tells you so, so much. I, I found that fascinating. And he does it again during the rocket launch, which is my overall favorite scene slash sequence in the entire movie is watching that thing take off, Patrick. It is mesmerizing it is so stinking gorgeous and beautiful just the way it shoots through the sky in various different perspectives and at one point the camera kind of pans around and we get their faces in awe and it was the same face that i was making at that time and what we see qu quietly and very very subtly take place is a change in expression in the way that he is looking at the rocket and the way that she is looking at the rocket. And I think this is that moment where she even says something about how I fell asleep that night crying. The only thoughts in my head of Takaki because she understood in watching his face, watch this rocket shooting off into the sky that he was seeing it as something totally different. It was this far off thing that he wanted that he could never have. It was symbolic for him. And she was just watching a rocket that was really cool. Shoot up into the sky. And he clearly was not focused on her at all. And it all just kind of comes together for her in that moment. And that's when she gives up on him. But it's the way that their faces look. If you go back and you just like, 
pause the screen and look at it. There is so much detail in how he draws them while they're looking at that rocket fire off that tells you everything you need to know. And this is kind of both of these moments, I think, are in line with what you were talking about earlier, wanting to kind of go back and watch it without any audio, because you can get all of the elements of his story and how those characters are feeling because he does stuff like this. And it's brilliant. It's what makes him special and top tier. There are plenty of amazing animators out there in different styles, but no one quite puts that full package together in the way that he does. And that's what makes him my favorite. And so I wanted to kind of point that out here with this last connecting point. It's fantastic. And it's what makes that rocket launch is absolutely incredible. And it, reinforces the fact that while cosmonaut at first was probably the most disjointed of the three really has become probably my favorite of the three in terms of those types of things and because of the way that i felt emotionally throughout the the actual episode and my connecting point loosely ties into that and it's really a line that sumita says in her voiceover she says Tono's always looking past me and she's right. He's always looking past her because he still has not gotten over Akari writing those emails that he ever actually sends, but it's the way she says it. And the fact that she has relegated herself to just accepting the fact that she's never going to have this guy. And I think in that moment, Aaron, it's probably the most mature thing that we hear from a character because you can hear that she's sad. She longs to be with him, just like he longs to be with Akari. But she has the maturity level, maybe, or she has the intellect or even maybe the right heart to say, okay, Enough is enough. I'm going to move on. And I think she also realizes that she doesn't need to fight for his affection, not just because his affection lies with somebody else, but because she knows that even if she had won it, it wouldn't be complete. And I think a lot of what Shinkai does in that third episode is he puts that on Takaki. He will always love Akari. They will always have the cherry blossoms. They will always have the winter night. But as he turns around and smiles, I, as I'm thinking through this, I'm realizing that maybe that's what he's thinking too. She's always looking past me. And I need to be able to look past her as well. And so I think what, what Samita says in that second episode is echoed in that third part, which allows that ending to hit home and make such a powerful emotional statement. And um, it just goes to show you how well Shinkai, not only as an artist, but also as a writer and a director, crafts these types of scripts, crafts this dialogue together and this monologue to allow us to really connect with that. So that was my connecting point. Good stuff, man. I like that one a lot. Well, that wraps up another episode here at Feelin' Film and officially ending Makoto Shinkai Month. As I said before, this has been fantastic. I've enjoyed walking through 
all of these. And at some point, we'll probably get to Voices of a Distant Star because we're completionists and we have to do this. In the meantime, coming up this week, we will be revealing our Oscar picks as well as talking spoiler-free about this year's nominated short films. And then next week, dropping on Tuesday... We'll be discussing the Oscars themselves and revealing this year's Feelers Choice Awards voted on by the amazing members of our Facebook group. Aaron, thank you so much for another great conversation, my friend, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.